as we were praying. That there, there is more to be had than what we have. Don't be content. I can remember one night, maybe eight or nine years ago, at Freddie's house. We just had a simple little Bible study there. And one night, Freddie brought a bunch of his lost co-workers, these guys covered with tattoos, they're into all sorts of drugs and wildness and filthy lifestyles like many of us came from. They were yet in it. And I've never spoke, I've never preached in a place where I felt the power of God so mightily present than that night. I was just certain God was going to save one of Freddie's co-workers. Stephanie Munoz was saved that night. I want that again. I want to know that. I don't want to be content just with having people fill in a building. We need the Spirit of God in here. Powerful way. My sermon today is titled Predestined Christ Likeness. Romans 8.28 is where I want to begin reading. You can turn your Bibles there. Romans 8.28, read three verses this morning. Same three we've been reading for number of weeks. Dave, David and Della, where are they today? In Houston. So we have a lot of people out today. Before I start, I just want, I want to mention this to everybody. This afternoon at 3 p.m., Brother Pat Horner, who prayed this morning, going to be giving us a report concerning the work in Northeast India. So if you have a burden for missions, you have a heart for that type of thing, you have interest, we support Brother Pat. We have, he was the, actually the first missionary we supported. Our church started in June of 2001. We began supporting Brother Pat in July of 2001. He was the first one we brought on. And have been supporting him ever since. And so I encourage you all to be here at 3 o'clock to hear what God is doing over in that part of the world. Romans 8.28 And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. Those whom He predestined, He also called. Those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified.
day, we jump back into our Romans 8 series of sermons. Now, here's what I want to do. I know some of you haven't been here before during these things. And so what I want to do is bring you quickly, plus it's been two weeks since we've been here, I want to bring you quickly up to speed with a flow of thought in Paul's mind in the middle of chapter 8. Go back all the way to verse 17. Paul says this about Christians. Now listen, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, he's not saying this about you. This is not about all people. This is specifically about children of God. And he says this, we are, and I'm kind of adding that there, because I'm kind of jumping into the middle of Paul's thought. We are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ if or provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Well, here's what Paul's doing. He's making a vital connection between two things. Suffering and glory. In fact, it's an inseparable connection. Christian, or if you're not a Christian, I'll tell you this, there is no glory except down the path of suffering. Then the Apostle says this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, and he's talking about Christians, their sufferings that they go through right here in this life, they're not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. Now ESV say, to us. King James says, in us. It is a difficult word to translate. It is actually the preposition that means toward us. And it makes sense. Because we know how it is. 1 John 3 tells us the glory is actually the glory of Christ that reaches out towards us, lays hold upon us, and consumes us into it. And so, either way, it's not exactly in, it's not exactly to, it's the idea of a glory that reaches out, comes towards us, picks us up, and pulls us in. Now, here's the thing. The truth is, and Christian, you have to admit this is true, we really do not have a very good grasp of our coming glory. It's future. We can't see it with our human eyes. We're forgetful of it. We're surrounded by the stuff in this world. So the glory that God has in store for us often seems rather out there, far removed, vague. If we're at all honest, it doesn't really consume us the way it ought to. And yet, on the other hand, our aches and pains, our illnesses, our financial trials, when stuff breaks, when people speak evil about us, that stuff tends to loom before us as these huge things. That's true. They consume vast amounts of our attention, our concern, our worries, our prayers. And Paul comes to us in verse 18 and says, hey, wait just a second. I want to put all this in proper perspective for you. All your sufferings that you are so consumed with seem so large and daunting and threatening. In the final analysis and assessment of things, 
they're really not as big as you think they are. They're actually quite insignificant. By the time we get to Romans 8.28, Paul is really still making the same case he was making back there. He hasn't radically shifted thoughts. Paul's arguing for the fact that our sufferings ought not to seem nearly so unbearable as we often think them to be. And one of the reasons is exactly this. Because all things, which distinctly includes our suffering, it's being entirely worked together by God for our good. And you know what? Verse 29 shows us what sort of good it is. God, with very distinct purpose, is working everything together in my life for the chief good of conforming me to the image of Jesus Christ. The perfection of which is that final glorification that you see there at the end of verse 30. Look, we spoke about God's effectual call a number of weeks ago. We looked about the fact that God foreknew Saving faith in Jesus Christ is essential. Justification is absolutely imperative. But you know what? None of these things are an end in themselves. God's purpose is to make each of His chosen ones into brilliant reflections of the Son of God Himself. So when Paul speaks of good in verse 28, all things work together for good, the good he seems to intend is very specifically the fact that all things are working together to bring about my conformity to Christ's image. Who could ever have imagined? You remember where you were? When the music controlled you and the drugs... You got picked up and had a gun on the seat there. Remember where it was that you were at in those days when you served your sin and you served your lusts and you served the devil? You hated the things of God. Who could have imagined that God would take a wretch like that and actually save them and hell-deserving folks and purpose to turn us into the likeness of Christ? Look here! Having the glorified Christ. I mean having Him. Looking at Him. Having Him. Laying hold on Him. Being literally swallowed up by His glory. And actually becoming part of that glory. It's not even conceivable in the mind of Paul that there's any greater good than that. The glory of Christ. That's the end of our search for good. It doesn't get any gooder than that. That's exactly what's promised here in these verses. Now look. Paul's had something in his mind in all of this. And it's this. With all of your sufferings, you have hope in the midst of it. Verses 24 and 25, Paul uses the term hope five times. That's on his mind. It's clear that Paul speaks the way he does in verses 28 and even all the way to the end of the chapter. For the very specific purpose of fueling hope. Why? Because hope frees men. I'm constantly reminded. I see these pictures come back from John, from Pat. In the times I visited India, China, 
I'm constantly reminded when I see those kinds of pictures, little old ladies in India, of hope and hopelessness. I mean, you can see it in their faces. There's a certain hopeless stare in the eyes of Hindus, in the eyes of Muslims, in the eyes of Buddhists and Catholics that you never see in the eyes of Christians. Paul is speaking the way he does here to fuel hope. Because hope is a tremendously powerful force. It overcomes discouragement and depression and fear and worry and emptiness and uselessness. Look, hope totally changes the way I think about planting a church in Corpus Christi. It changes the way we think about our job. It gives new perspectives on marriage. You know, hope, the hope of glory, it literally opens up tomorrow to a myriad of possibilities. It invites vision and dreams and planning and prayer. Hope, look, you know what hope does? Hope takes a man like you find out here on these streets, consumed with lust, consumed with pornography, consumed with food and drugs and money and greed. And it frees them. Why? Because people, some of you in this room right now, you are hung up with drink, you are hung up with sex, you are hung up with drugs. Why? You know what? People that feast on those things are people that don't have hope in anything that's greater and more beautiful and more satisfying and more worth having. Hope frees us from that bondage it literally conquers those things. All those things are for people who don't have hope. They're fleeting substitutes. That's it. For something that's really great. You know what? Paul knows that hope is essential to the Christians. So he specifically does not shrink back from giving us the great doctrines of election and predestination, and effectual calling, and justification, and glorification. You know why? Because He knows these are the very fountainheads of hope. This majority of the church growth movement today has totally missed it. They don't want doctrine. So they give people fluff. And they're funny little stories. But those things don't give men real hope. Not the kind of deep-seated, unshakable thing that God intends for us to have. A hope built on the unmovable, eternal foundations of the purposes of the living God for His people. So let's look more closely at verse 29. For those, the ones that everything works out together for good, He's now going to give us other descriptions of these folks. They are those whom He for new. Now we considered the word for new two weeks ago. I really think Amos 3.2 gives us great insight here. Listen to this. God speaking to Israel says this, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. What a thing to say. The God who knows everything says specifically, to a select chosen people, I have known you, or you only have I known, 
of all the families of the earth. Clearly, for God to foreknow someone means that He has chosen them for His very own and set His love on them and cared for them before they ever existed. They have eternally been objects of His favor, His desire, His distinguishing grace, not because of anything He saw in them, not of anything He saw that they would do or be or believe. Listen to these words. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. Well, then why were they chosen? Ah, I know! He looked and saw that they would believe on Him eventually. That's not what it says. You want to know why? But it is because the Lord loves you. I just read from Deuteronomy 7. You say, yeah, but, but brother, you're talking about Christians. What are you doing talking about uh, Israel? Well, because of this. For one, I want you to see what it means for God to know somebody. And we are known. And also, I would have you to know this. That this very description I just gave to you of Israel actually has its greatest fulfillment in the church. You say, oh, how do you know that? Well, because when you go over to a place like, I don't know, 1 Peter 2.9, you find that the very description of those people back then is given to us now. We're called a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His possession. Why does God set His affection and love on anyone? Is it because He sees anything? Is it because of anything? Is it because of their... It's clearly not. He did not set his affections on Israel because they were greater in number. He did not set his affections on Jacob because of anything that he saw in them because he made this decision before. They, they, you know, the declaration that the older would serve the younger was made while they were still in the womb before they had ever done anything. It's not by what we do. It's according to God's purpose of election that God does this. And so we looked at that. Foreknown. But here it is. Those whom He foreknew... He also predestined. He chose them. Treasured possessions, these individuals. He also predestined them to be conformed to the image of His Son. Yes, folks. Predestination is found in your Bibles. It is truly a God-given doctrine. Now, the term predestinate, what does it mean? Well, you hear the word destiny in there or destination simply means that a person's destiny has been decided pre beforehand that little prefix has the idea of something happening before now look this is what it teaches us what happens in your life does not happen by sheer dumb luck or by chance fortune you know what we see here? We see a picture of 
Think of it. I mean, we can't think of it really. Eternal triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, forever existing in unapproachable light of the greatest magnificence, and there in the eternal counsels of absolute wisdom, God purposes to take a very favored chosen people who would be black with the stains of their own sin and through the full redemption that is only had by faith in Jesus Christ, God determines to create, recreate, take them from their depraved and destitute situation. God determines to recreate that people into image bearers of Christ. Now, look, some of you might be here right now and you're saying, well, I don't know about this. I got a baby by me that's crying or making noise and it's distracting and you know this isn't really all that interesting to me and I'm I'm kind of ready to yawn in all this. Really what interests you is money, sex, cars, boyfriends, girlfriends, movies, being popular, fun. You don't care about being conformed to the image of the Son of God. Even the thought of it is like somebody speaking to you in another language. It's just noise. It's meaningless. It's foreign. You do not want God to invade your life and make you like Christ. You see that as loss. Not as gain. You see becoming like Christ as boring. As sucking all the fun out of life. You see this as nothing more than joyless bondage. And you know what? You have this image in your face of these Christians with these long, hallowed cheek look. You know, people in despair. How do I know some of you think that way? You know why? Because I used to think that way. And so did most of the Christians. Probably all the Christians in here. One time or another, we had ideas like that. But you know what? I want you to think about something. Every person in this place right now who has trusted Christ is already being conformed to the image of Christ. But there was a day when we were not being conformed. Every Christian knows both sides. Part of our life has been lived on one side of this thing and part of our life has been lived on the other and not a single one of us in this room or anywhere in this world that's tasted both sides would want the side you're on. Not one of us. What does that tell you? The very least it tells you, the very least you have to admit is that we are indeed persuaded that what we have is far better than what you have. And you know what? It's one thing if we couldn't relate to you. But if we've been in your shoes and know what it's like and wouldn't trade places with you for all the world, that ought to make you think. But I'll tell you another thing. I'll tell you another thing to consider. That we have not found this conforming work of God to be the wearisome drudgery and the miserable duty that you imagine. In fact, we didn't know true happiness and joy until we found Christ. Now look, we'll apologize to you. 
We have not always shown you the joy that we know we should. We know that's true. But I'll tell you what, in the deep recesses of our heart, we have felt joy that we can't even put into words. That's why we wouldn't trade you. Because the joy we've gotten in Christ beats your joy in sex every day of the week. It does. We've got the better thing. We do. Let me give you another thing to think about. Hebrews 9.27 says, there's a day coming, you've got to face two pretty big monsters. You've got to face death, and after that, judgment. If you are being made like Christ, then like Christ, you will rise. Now you ask yourself this, do you want to rise like Christ, or do you want to stay forever unlike Christ? When it comes to that great and awful moment when it's your turn to stand before the judge of the living and the dead, will you want the image of God's dear Son stamped upon your very being? Or will it rejoice you to find nothing of His image there? That's no small question. So the truth is this. For the Christian All things, especially sufferings, work together for good precisely because God has chosen and loved you before you existed. And this love expresses itself through God's predetermined commitment to make you like Christ. All things work together for your good because all things are working together to bring about Christ-likeness. For this, Christian, you have been chosen. For this, you have been loved. For this, you have been predestinated. This is not just irrelevant, useless information. This is the revelation of who God is. How God acts. How God loves and saves and keeps. These statements in verses 29 and 30 are meant to give us a depth of hope in God that we could not have without them. So now, We really need to ask this. Some questions probably rise in your mind about being conformed to the image of His Son. First, what is it? What does it mean? I mean, isn't Jesus God? How can I take upon myself the image of one who is God? Second, when does this happen? Is it before I die? Is it after I die? Or even after I die? Do I get full Christless likeness right away? Or do I have to wait even then? Third, this question comes. Why does God conform me to the image of His Son? Is He constrained by my beauty and charm and natural lovableness? Freddie's saying no. Not that. Or is it something else that moves him? So let's finish up by answering these three questions. First, what does it mean to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ? Well, let me start with a quote from Revelation. I'm going to read from Revelation 21, beginning in verse 1, if you want to turn there. Otherwise, you can listen to me. Then I saw a new heaven 
and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. Now what I want to tell you is this. John is seeing right now in his vision or in his being taken up into glory, he is seeing things as they will be when life as it is now has totally passed away. New heaven, new earth, eternal kingdom, eternal paradise. We are fully conformed to the image of Christ at this point. This is what he says, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Sort of makes it sound like the holy city, the New Jerusalem, is the church, huh? She's coming as a bride. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people and God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. You see, He's wiping away tears from their eyes. This leads me to believe they have eyes to have the tears wiped away from, right? They have their redemption bodies. The glorification is complete. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. They've passed away. This is the eternal age. At this point, we will have seen Christ. We shall be like Him here. But here's the thing I want you to see. Revelation 21.3 says, listen to this, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. God is dwelling with man. So we know this. No matter what it means for us to be conformed to the image of Christ, we never want to imagine that it means we become God. And listen, don't think that's just crazy and nobody believes that. Look, Jesus Christ is God. But our conformity to His image only involves what He is as a glorified, risen man. And yet, now listen, yet, that being said, our glorification absolutely does make us godlike in many respects. We were originally fashioned in the image of God. And even now, those who have been born again have certain things in the Bible said of them like this. Ephesians 4.24 says that we possess the nature of the new man who is what? Created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Now look, Peter says something in 2 Peter 1.4 that I would not even tell you right now if it wasn't in the Bible. Because we would all think it was heresy. This ought to really floor us. We are partakers of the divine nature. 1 John 3.9 says, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. You know why not? God's seed abides in them. And the glorious thing about these verses is that the likeness of God, the divine nature, and God's seed abiding in us, these are all present realities. 
How much more will we be like God when the fullness of the image of Christ is upon us? So to be Christ-like is definitely to be God-like in many capacities. Paul says, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Our lowly bodies are going to be made like His glorious body. So full of magnificence that Jesus describes us as shining like the sun in the kingdom of our Father. And so free from sin, impurity, and depravity that we will be those described in Matthew 5 who are the blessed ones who will see God. We shall look. Whatever we become, we will be made of such substance as to not be consumed at the sight of God. Job says, in my flesh, I shall see God. Right now, it's all through a mirror or through a glass dimly, but then face to face. Look, I can say little else here. Once we get to the place where we're talking about partakers of the divine nature, glory that shines like the sun, seeing God face to face, all His image bearers of the Christ, I mean, I'm tongue-tied and at a loss to go beyond. As John says, what we will be has not yet appeared. But that at least gives you somewhat of an idea of what it means. But then there's this question. When are we conformed to the image of Christ? Is it now? Is it later? Is it when I die? Is it when Jesus comes again to set up that kingdom? My answer is yes. If you're a Christian, all of these is correct. We know we're being conformed right now to His image because 2 Corinthians 3.18 says so. Does it not? Listen to it. We all, all Christians, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image. There it is. In Romans 8, 29, it's conformed to the image of Christ. Here, it's being transformed into the same image. The image of the Lord. From one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So we know it's happening now, right? On the day you were born again, God began a process of change that is lifting you from one degree of Christ-like glory to the next. And the interesting truth here is that we attain to these ever-increasing degrees. Please, hear me. Not by forever and always studying the Ten Commandments setting up rules and regulations and requirements, constantly gazing at law, constantly... It's not that. It's gazing at the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ that we grow into His likeness. It's like Moses beholding the Lord God and coming away with a face that glowed with radiance. When we look at Christ in the Word, in the Gospel, something happens. This is exactly why we never want to get this notion in our heads that the Gospel is only for the lost. 
Never. It is not that. Have you forgotten? The Gospel is the power of God unto salvation for those who believe. For believers. Folks, we need to set our eyes there. You need to go back to Christ and Him crucified over and over and over again. See Him working out a righteousness that our father Adam could never work out and you and I could never work out. And He sweat for and worked for and made come to pass. Set your eyes upon Him as He bore that awful load for the very crimes you committed. For the very ones. Gaze steadily upon death and the grave not able to hold Him. Him at the right hand of the Father. He's interceding. Folks, think of Him there. Interceding on your behalf. Get your eyes off the blooming television long enough to get an eyeful of Christ. This is where your sanctification comes. Look, you try to find sanctification in laws and rules without Christ. Look, coming to Christ, He makes us those who fulfill the righteous requirement of the law. We don't end it. We don't abrogate it. We don't cut it off. We become those who are fulfillers of it. We establish the law by the Spirit. We walk according to the Spirit. We love men. It's a fulfilling of that. I'm not saying we become lawless. I'm saying this. The perfect law keeper was Christ. Set your eyes there. There is a supernatural mechanism that takes place as the Christian beholds Christ, the Spirit of God unleashes such degrees of transforming, glorifying work in our lives. I guarantee you this. You know this is true. Christians grow at different rates. Some of you have been saved much less than others, but you've outran them already. I guarantee you if you have, it's because you've set your eyes on Christ more. What do you what do you want? Again, we come back to this thing. You want to be just have mediocrity in this thing? Set your eyes there. We're not just casual observers in this thing, waiting for God to do what he predestinated to do. We are predestinated to become like Jesus, and that means that each of you Christians should be giving yourself to living this thing out. Pray and study and fight and suffer and trust to be like Jesus. But there's more. When I die, something more happens in this thing. You see, folks, something more happens when I die to bring me into my predestinated condition. Listen to me. The Christian's whole problem with remaining sin has to do with this mortal body. It does. When I die, 1 Corinthians 5.8 says, I'm absent from the body and present with the Lord. There you have it. At death, we are immediately separated from the body that Romans 6.6 calls our body of sin. When that's gone, no more sin. In Colossians 3.5, Paul says, put to death our members which are upon the earth. But when we're separated from our members that are on the earth, There's nothing more to put to death. 
Isn't that the same kind of thing we find in Romans 8.13? If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. When we're separated from our bodies, there's no more deeds of the body to kill. So at death, we become like those described in Hebrews 12.23. We exist as the spirits of just men made perfect. Spirits, yes. Physical bodies in the ground or shredded apart somewhere on this earth. Spiritual bodies not given to us yet. We're spirits in that sense. And we've been made perfect in the sense that there's no more sin. So that happens at death. But there's more. At Christ's second coming, we have a clear biblical teaching that that's where this glorification comes to its culmination. When the last trumpet sounds and Christ returns, it is there and then that we will know the redemption of our bodies. I get this from 1 Corinthians 15. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. When, Paul? In a moment. In the twinkling of an eye. What's going to happen? We're going to be raptured? No. At the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then come to, shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O grave, where is your sting? The last change, the last degree of glory, even that's probably not a good way to say that because who knows what God will do with us through the endless ages of time and how much we will increase even in our knowledge of God. And as old Jonathan Edwards surmised, well, if our knowledge of God grows, His lovability and our estimation will increase and our love for Him will increase. And maybe it's very likely that through all the endless ages we will continuously become more and more closely resembling Christ. But all I, can, all I know is that the culmination of the work we have revealed to us in Scripture comes to pass that last trump blows. We step into immortality, not just in spirit, but both the body and the spirit, immortal, imperishable, impervious to death, full of Christ-like glory, when that last trumpet blows and this age is over and this heaven and earth pass away, we will go through that doorway out into the eternal ages of God's immeasurable riches, wearing the image of the Son of God predestined for us from the dawn of eternity. Now this brings us to the last question. Why did God predestinate us to be conformed to the image of His Son? And of course, we don't have to look any further than the last part of verse 29 of Romans 8. In order that He, Jesus Christ, might be the firstborn among many brothers. Now let's settle something right away. The word firstborn does not in any way imply that Jesus Christ is a created being who was created before everything else was created. Nor does it mean that Christ was born before any of God's people were ever born. Nor does it have to do with the fact that He was Mary's firstborn son. Now listen, you might all be thinking, brother, it's really nice that you so dogmatically assert such things, but let's prove those. Okay? Look, obviously the word firstborn 
can and often does describe the first child physically born into a family. There's no debate about that. You can find that all over in the Bible. But the firstborn son had something else peculiar about them. They were also the son who above all other sons received the greatest privilege and honor. In other words, he had superiority over the other brothers and sisters. Let me show you this. Jacob said of Reuben, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the firstfruits of my strength. Get this word. Preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Oh, how often the idea of preeminence and firstborn are tied together in our Bibles. The term firstborn carries this very idea. God calls Israel His firstborn. Listen to this, Exodus 4.22. Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. Now here God's talking about a nation. Clearly firstborn doesn't imply actual physical birth because nations aren't actually physically born. And even if that was the idea, there are many people that were on the face of the earth, other nations that were physically born before the Israelites. The point is that God had chosen the people of Israel above all other peoples to be honored and preeminently favored and superior to the other nations. They, isn't this what we find in the book of Romans? They had the covenants. They had the prophets. They had the giving of the law. They had the promises. They had the worship. They had the temple. They had the Christ who would come from their bloodline. Clearly, they were preeminent in that sense. Now listen to this. Of the psalmist David, God says, and I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. And you can believe that's a foreshadowing of Christ. But listen, David was not the firstborn among his brethren. He was the lastborn. When God says this, it has everything to do with the fact He would make him the highest of the kings of the earth. It's preeminence. It's superiority. It doesn't imply birth order. The word firstborn can and is used in our Bibles in a way that has absolutely nothing to do with birth order or with being created. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. Jesus Christ had no beginning. He's God. Nor was He the first to be born among God's people. I mean, Abraham was born physically before the man Jesus Christ was born. When the term firstborn is used of Christ, always look for the idea of supreme exaltation. That's exactly what you have. Every, you know what? Every single time Christ is called the firstborn, that's the very idea you find in the Scriptures. Colossians 1.15, He's called the firstborn of all creation. Why? Paul says, because by Him all things were created. That's preeminence. They were created through Him. And even more than that, all things were created for Him. Paul says Christ is before all things. Not mainly time-wise, but in superiority. How do I know that? For it is He who holds all things together. It is He who is head of the church. Again, Colossians 1.18, Christ is called the firstborn of the dead. Why? Paul says precisely so that everything he might be preeminent. The cults want to take this term firstborn and make Jesus equal to us. 
But God uses it to describe Him for exactly the opposite reason. In order to show how absolutely exalted and superior and preeminent Jesus is above all else. He is a name that is above every name. Even though we shall bear His image, it's at His name that every one of our knees will bend and our tongues will confess. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. No matter how much we take upon Him, ourselves His image. The writer of Hebrews calls Him the firstborn into the world and immediately shows us that as the firstborn, God commands His angels to worship Him. Again, it's preeminence. That's in Hebrews 1.6. John calls Him the firstborn from the dead and immediately shows us His superiority by saying He is the ruler of the kings of the earth and finishes the thought with to Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. I know it's been long and I've done. Folks, in Romans 8.29, what Paul wants to overwhelm us with is a Christ-centered Gospel. Yes, God predestinates our conformity to Christ, but not ultimately for our sake, but for Christ. How easy it is for us to have a man-centered view of election and predestination and calling and justification and glorification. But Paul says no. The exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ is the ultimate goal. Jesus Christ is the prototype and a ransomed people from every tribe and language and people and nation will be little reflections of what He is. The unspeakable wonder of predestination is that it aims at and secures the preeminent glorification of Christ in the glorification of His people. The purposes of God just stagger us. Amen. You're dismissed.